we're coming back today to our uh, study of the book of Exodus. We're really coming to a close of this, just a survey uh, study of this very important theological book, historical book certainly, but a great theological message in this book as we've tried to emphasize. There's hardly a gospel truth that is developed anywhere in the scripture that does not find its revelation and its uh, discussion here in the book of Exodus. It is a foundational book that is so extremely important for understanding a great deal in the uh, Old Testament and New Testament as well. Now, I'm not going to uh, rehash everything that we've done in uh, surveying the book, but last time we were together, we started looking at the call of Moses, coming back then to chapter 3, chapter 4 uh, of the book. We, I say, considered many of the theological themes uh, already, but we want to uh, come now back to really the beginning of the book as the Lord called Moses uh, to be the deliverer of the people and some very important instructions uh, given to him that I think will help us uh, as we seek to implement these truths uh, in our own lives. Now, again, we know uh, the story. People had been in bondage for these number of years. God, in keeping his covenant promise to Abraham, in hearing the afflictions and the cries of these people, uh, determined that this was the time uh, that they would be delivered from the place of bondage and brought into that land of promise that was given so many years before unto Abraham. So this covenant uh, promise, the fulfillment of the covenant promise, is certainly one of the key themes. Uh, that has been developed all the way through the book. But now Moses, having tried to deliver the people on his own when he was there in Egypt himself, failed obviously, was now in exile for some 40 years, and now the Lord uh, at the burning bush uh, calls Moses, commissions Moses to be the deliverer of these people. Uh, and Moses uh, begins to offer a great deal of excuses, many excuses why he did not feel that he was the one that could uh, fulfill this so important ministry to the people of God. And so what we're doing here, I want to look at the various promises, the various instructions that God gives to Moses, some of the excuses that Moses sought to offer before the Lord, and then the answer to those excuses uh, that uh, the Lord so graciously, but at times sternly, uh, gave to Moses to set him on the course uh, for fulfilling the will of God in this particular and very important commission. Now, let me just give a quick overview of where I think we are. We weren't together last week, but uh, as I recall, two weeks ago, we were looking at the first uh, of the excuses when the Lord showed himself to Moses uh, at the burning bush. Remember, we discussed something of that angel of the Lord, this Christophany, uh, that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And let's keep in mind, please, that that angel of the Lord is a Christophany. It is the messenger who is Jehovah, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And understand that we have here in human form, the angel of the Lord, always in the Old Testament, uh, had the appearance of man, was not in human nature. Uh, this is pre-incarnate. There was not the assuming of flesh, the assuming of the human nature until the incarnation. But there were various instances uh, in the Old Testament dispensation, when the Lord Jesus, in pre-incarnate appearance, uh, revealed himself to his people uh, for comfort, for instruction, for guidance, 
we have all of the mediatorial operations of the Lord Jesus evidenced in these uh, pre-incarnate appearances. Uh, but the most important, I think the most common, is this angel of the Lord. And I want to make that clear here. I think we sometimes get the impression uh, that uh, at the burning bush that it was just God somehow mysteriously speaking through the flames. Uh, it was the flames that certainly called attention to Moses and got him off the path to go see what was happening at the burning bush. But there in the midst uh, of the burning bush, you can see that at verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame, not as the flame, uh, the angel of the Lord was not the burning, was not the flame. Here was something miraculous, something supernatural that was occurring here. A manifestation of God's presence, certainly. Uh, but there in the burning bush, in the flame, uh, was this manifestation of the angel of the Lord, the messenger uh, of Jehovah, uh, who had this word uh, of call unto Moses. And we discussed some of that uh, in the last lesson. But when Moses hears that call, uh, he felt that he was absolutely inadequate. Uh, he asked the question there at verse 11, Who am I uh, that I can go unto Pharaoh? Uh, this job is too big for me. Uh, this responsibility is more than I can handle. Who am I that I can go unto Pharaoh and deliver these people? And the Lord says to Moses here, Not to worry, uh, I am going to be with you. And so the proposition then that I want us to see in this first uh, little episode uh, is that the divine presence, the divine presence is the answer to our inadequacy. The divine presence is the answer to our inadequacy. When the Lord calls us to do whatever it is He calls us to do, we have the, uh, if we have any sense to us, uh, a certain degree of intimidation that we do not have the ability. Uh, we do not have the sufficiency, the wherewithal within ourselves uh, to obey God and to fulfill that call. Uh, and I say if we have any spiritual sense to us, we are going to feel that intimidation. We're going to feel that self-insufficiency. And Moses certainly did. Uh, who am I? I can't do this. But the Lord says not to worry. I will be with you. And you have that great uh, promise then at verse 12. And he said, certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token. And we spent some time discussing that word token, the word sign, uh, that the Lord was going to give to Moses. Uh, you're going to come back to this very place. You're going to come back to this very mountain with the people that you are going to be delivering. And you're going to worship me here at this mountain. And the Lord says, when you come back with these people and you worship me at this mountain, this is going to be the token. This is going to be the evidence that I have been with you. Here is the Emmanuel promise. God with his people in times of crisis, uh, in times of uncertainty, in times uh, when the Lord is giving the instructions for what the ministry is to be, the Lord assures his people of that constant, that unceasing, abiding presence uh, of himself with his people as they conduct that ministry. Uh, and that was the guarantee of success. What was going to guarantee the success of this ministry was not the fact that Moses uh, was a talented man, not the fact that he had some innate ability. No, not at all. It was the presence of the Lord. And when God was there, when the presence of the Lord was manifest and revealed in the ministry of Moses, uh, then not even Pharaoh and the strongest nation, the most powerful army and the face of God's earth uh, could not stand uh, in the face of that divine presence. So let us learn this lesson, 
uh, that the divine presence is the answer to our inadequacies. All right, then, the second uh, proposition that I'll make, and we started looking at this, and I want to pick it up then at this point this morning, that the divine revelation is the answer to our ignorance. The divine revelation is the answer to our ignorance. Pick it up now at verse 13. Uh, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of our fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover unto Moses, thou shalt Uh, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is his name forever, and this is my memorial uh, unto all generations. All right, so here is now the excuse that Moses uh, is raising before the Lord. Uh, And how many times have we played this game as we anticipate what our ministry is going to be, as we anticipate how we're going to fulfill the word Uh, that God has given to us, we start playing this what-if game. What if they ask me a question I don't know? What if this happens? What if this happens? Uh, And this is what Moses is doing here. Uh, He has now the promise of the presence of God, but now he begins to wonder, what if I get there and they ask me a question I can't answer? Uh, They're going to ask me, who sent me? Who is the God that sent me? What am I going to tell? I don't know what I'm going to say to these people. Don't know what I'm going to say. Uh, And he was worried here. Uh, I said that the people would ask him that difficult question that he couldn't answer. And, and I know that I, I, fe- I fear that every Sunday morning as I come to you people, right? That you're going to ask me that question that I, I, I can't answer and have to ask Sander afterwards. Uh, you know what? How, how to deal with that. Uh, that? That's an intimidating thing, all right? We, we, we're called to be the ministers of God. We're supposed to know the Word of God. But uh, there's going to be those hard questions. And what are we going to say? I don't have a word for these people. What Moses was saying, I don't have a word that I can give these people. And God says not to worry. All right? God says not to worry. I'm not leaving this up to you to figure out what the word is. I'm not going to leave this up to you to figure out what the inspiring, motivating message is going to be. You just tell them who I am. You tell them uh, of my being, of my person, that this is the authority. Thus saith the Lord, basically, is what we're going to see here. Uh, And that, then, is going to be... The word of answer. So Moses says, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Uh, They're they're going to want to know about your nature. They're going to want to know about your character. Uh, I don't know enough. I I don't know enough theology. I don't know enough doctrine. I don't know enough here that I can uh, deal with these people. You need to find a scholar someplace. Find a preacher someplace. Find somebody else. I can't do this. And God says, hey, here's what you tell them. You just tell them that I am that I am. Here is the revelation of the self of God. I am that I am. The divine revelation of self. Now this is uh, a most important statement. We have, and I've emphasized this to you people over the years, that the names of God, the titles of God, are a part of the revelation that God gives of himself. Uh, Self-revelation. What we know about God is not the figment of our imagination. It is not the product of our, uh, of our thinking. What we know about God is only what God has chosen to reveal to us about himself. And if we look at the various means of revelation, 
we have natural revelation. We've talked about that before. We have the Word of God uh, written for us. Uh, but in this written Word of God, and particularly in the Old Testament uh, era, in the Old Testament dispensation, we see it in the New Testament as well with the names of Christ. But the names of God, the titles of God, were one of the key ways one of the principal means that God used to communicate something about himself to his people. Uh, and we have all of these titles, and I've emphasized, I say, hundreds of times uh, to you folks that we never want to pass over those. Uh, we want to, as much as we can, identify what those names or titles of God are and plug in that data uh, into the uh, context that we're dealing with because they are never used haphazardly. Uh, I, I want to pay attention when I read my Bible here, whether it's God or Lord or Almighty or what. All of that is important. Uh, now, I'm going to be talking here for a few moments about that name of God, uh, Jehovah. Uh, some say Yahweh. I'm not going to get into the uh, controversy there, how to pronounce the name. I'll say a little bit about that maybe in just a moment or two. But I'm talking about that divine name of God. Authorized version typically spells it in all capitals, Lord. When you see the word Lord in all capitals in your authorized version, uh, it's talking about this name, Jehovah. Uh, sometimes it occurs with another name, Lord, that's spelled in all small case. And so the authorized version, instead of saying Lord, Lord will say Lord God. And when you see God uh, in all capitals in your authorized version, it's talking about this particular word. It is the name of God. So I don't want to get technical here because I'm going to start speaking in very general terms. But if I can make this distinction uh, for you. Uh, in, in reality, there is but one name of God. All of the others are appellatives or uh, appellatives. Are, 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 uh, appellative is a common noun, a common word uh, that we use as a title. All right, so many of you who can't break the Baptist mode here in viewing the minister uh, will, will refer to uh, Kearns as pastor, all right, as he's the only pastor in the church. That is Baptist theology, but we'll get you people corrected here. All right, every elder, I don't want to get into church polity here, right? But we're Presbyterians, all right? And all of the elders have a pastoral function. A pa he, well, I won't go there. All right, but if I use the word pastor to refer, that's an appellate. That's not his name. All right, that is not his name, and, and I, I run across this at school all the time. Right, I got somebody coming in to talk about pastors. You know, Kurds, as though the, you know that's theirs, but that's beside the point. Uh, I digress. That's an appellative. All right, a common name, a common word that is applied to someone as a title and used as a proper name. All right, now all of these other titles of God, Lord or El Shaddai, God Almighty, all of these are descriptive titles. Uh, that are revealing to us something of his person, something of his nature, something of his work, something of his character. And all of that limits. All of that limits. And this is the, this is the great mystery uh, of, of all of these titles and demonstrates the grace of God in revealing himself to us in this way. Uh, we know that God is a spirit. All right? our, our catechism uh, describes God in those terms. God is a spirit infinite. All right? That's the first statement that we learn. God is a spirit infinite. Uh, he is without bound. He is without limitation. Uh, and I say here is the grace then of this self-revelation because every time God reveals himself to us as El Shaddai, God Almighty, or El 
Olam, God eternal, uh, El Elyon, the Most High God. Every time he reveals himself to us in one of those names, what is he doing? He's limiting himself. All right? he, there's a sense there in which he is limiting and narrowing our understanding of who he is. Uh, now, it says great things about him. When I read uh, in Genesis that God is the Most High God, all right, he is the Most High God. That speaks to me of His transcendence. That speaks to me of His exalted status, of His majesty, of His glory. Uh, it, and it focuses my attention upon that aspect of His character. Uh, when, when I think of God as El Shaddai or Almighty God, that draws my attention to His power, uh, to His sufficiency. But you can see what I'm saying. It draws my attention. It focuses my attention upon one particular aspect. Uh, of who he is or what he does or what he is like. And I say there's the grace of God. Here is this one that is infinite, but he reveals himself to us and we are finite. All right? We are finite. We all have finite minds. It is an absolutely impossible uh, for us who are finite to completely understand that which is infinite. Uh, but God in his grace uh, will reveal this or that about himself. Uh, and what he reveals uh, is ultimately beyond our comprehension. But I say it's the grace of God that reveals himself to us. And one way is by these names. But we come to this statement, Jehovah. Uh, and, and we have in Exodus 3.14 uh, the closest explanation uh, that we have of that divine name that we have anywhere in the scripture. Uh, the Lord explains himself. I am that I am. And in many ways, and I'm going to say several things about this, uh, about this name Jehovah here. Uh, but in many ways, this is a, 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 the name of God that reminds us. And I think this is the key point that we're going to see here in this context. That declares that I am what I am. I'm not this. I'm not that. You can't limit me. I, I'm not limited, you see. Uh, I am that I am. So it certainly speaks to us uh, of his uh, of his self-existence. All right? There are many things that are part of this communication here. Uh, it, it speaks to us of the self-existence of God. Uh, I, am, I have no beginning. I have no end. I am what I am. I am, I am. And I, I, there's interesting uh, points of grammar here that I, I, I'm not going to get into. Uh, you can almost, in, in Hebrew, if you can just bear with me for a moment, uh, take the word that almost as an equal sign, if you will. Uh, the, the copulative verb, I am, I am. All right? I am, I am. This is what I am, I am. Uh, that's why you see it sometimes as I am hath sent me. It's not I am that I am sent me. I am. I am. I am. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful expression. All right? A beautiful expression emphasizing and declaring the absolute self-existence of God. Uh, the absolute independent one. This is uh, a, a key point of the uh, revelation here. God is the absolute independent one. Now, that, that boggles the mind. Uh, we think of independence and we, we, you know, we, we're an independent country, we're an independent this, independent that. Uh, we don't have a clue. All right? There's not a creature that has a clue of what it means to be independent. Uh, we are all in one way or another affected and influenced by stuff outside of ourselves. Uh, people affect me. Weather affects me. 
circumstances affect me, everything affects me. Uh, there is not a creature that is independent. Oh, we may think we are, we may tout ourselves, oh, I'm an independent thinker, I'm independent church, I'm independent, well, hey, it's nonsense. All right? Uh, there's no one apart from God himself that is absolutely and totally independent, unaffected, uninfluenced by anything outside of himself. God is not a reactionary. Uh, God is not dictating and determining his course on the basis of what someone else does. How often I hear that nonsense, right? That God is up there in heaven looking at what's going on down here. And say, oh, you do that? Well, I'll do this if you do that. That's nonsense. All right? God is unaffected. He is uninfluenced. He is the absolutely independent one. I am. I am. What the Lord says. It speaks to us of His changelessness. Uh, his changeless sovereignty. Nobody affects me. I am that I am. The absolute changeless sovereignty of, uh, of the Lord. Uh, I am that I am. It, it's the covenant name. We often uh, discuss this particular name of God in terms of it being the covenant name of God. And we say that because it is uh, the name of God that is peculiarly identified with His covenant promises and with the saving of His people. He is Jehovah to His people. He is Jehovah to those with whom He has entered into that covenant relationship. It is the saving name of God. Uh, it is that name that is linked to His redeeming purposes. Uh, to his people. And it's not without significance that we're going to see it in this very context. I'm going to deliver you, redeem you. This is in fulfillment of the covenant promise that I have made with Abraham. Uh, and it's Jehovah. It is Jehovah. It is the Lord. Uh, the changeless, uh, independent, self-existent, covenant-saving God uh, that is going to be uh, the one that uh, is the authority uh, in delivering them uh, from this place of affliction. Uh, so it is the name of God. But it, I, I say in many ways, if I can explain it, I know this is, this is very difficult because it's, it's, it's such a complex and such a rich and a pregnant uh, expression here. Uh, but, but I view this many times, if, if I can put it this way, as a blank check. All right? The name I am is a blank check uh, to these people. That God will be what... They need Him to be. Right? Uh, remember what I said a moment ago, and I'm saying it for this reason. All of the other names of God, all the other titles of God, in one way or another, narrow and limit my understanding of God. When I think of God, I say as Lord, small l-o-r-d, or big l, but small o-r-d. Uh, when, I, when I see that word, that speaks to me of the kingship of God. It speaks to me of the authority of God. It speaks to me of the ownership uh, and the sovereignty uh, of Christ and of our God. And that's a beautiful thought. All right? But the word Lord, uh, Adonai, all right? you want to learn a Hebrew word? Uh, say, I want to hear it. Adonai. Adonai. Very good. That's Lord, big L, small O, small R, small D. All right, so now I can talk to you people. You're educated now. All right, Adonai. All right, Adonai. When I see that word Adonai, Lord, uh, that narrows... If I can use the word narrow, but it, it directs my attention to that one particular aspect of his being. I tend, when I see the word Lord, not to be thinking about his grace necessarily. 
I don't really think about His mercy necessarily. He is the sovereign. He is the king. He is the ruler, the owner of all things. Narrows my understanding. Uh, when I think of uh, the title, uh, God Almighty. Let me just show you this verse because we're going to have to consider this uh, here in just a moment anyway. Look at Exodus chapter 6 uh, in verse 3. Verse 2, God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. Now, we'll have to talk about that in a different uh, context in just a moment. But, but I revealed myself, he says, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Now, when you look at the context of God Almighty... Uh, it is the God who is sufficient, the God who has the ability to keep the promise. This particular name of God, title of God, uh, is linked to His ability, to His faithfulness, to His constancy to fulfill the covenant promise. And how important that particular revelation was to Abraham. Uh, Isaac and Jacob, as they were the receivers of that covenant promise and things that appeared right to be beyond, uh, beyond comprehension. Uh, here, here's Abraham and Sarah, uh, and Abraham is old and Sarah is old, and God says there's going to be a son, there's going to be a son of promise, going to be a seed here. Well, humanly speaking, how in the world could that happen? God says not to worry, I'm El Shaddai, I'm God Almighty. All right, I am the God who has the sufficiency and the ability to keep my promise. If I give a promise to you, you can bank on it. All right? If I give a promise to you, you can count on it because I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I've got the power, the sufficiency, the ability, the determination to keep that covenant promise. All right, now, that is the particular focus upon that particular word. Now, I, I say to you that if God, uh, if God would have told Moses, you tell them. Uh, you, you tell them. You get down there, they're going to say, uh, who, who sent you? No, you say God El Shaddai. All right? God, God Almighty. Well, that would have been good. Right? That would have been good. Uh, and, and that would draw their attention to that one that has ability and power and sufficiency to do whatever it is that he promised he could do. That would be good. Right? Or you tell them that I'm Adonai. You tell them that I'm the Lord, the Sovereign, the King, and Pharaoh, therefore, will be no match to me. I am the King of kings. That'd be good. That'd be good. You tell them, I am the Most High God. That'd be good. I'm exalted. I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. I'm the possessor of all things. Don't worry about the Egyptians. I own them. That would be good. That would be good. But the Lord says to them, all right, the Lord says, I am. I am what I am. And I say it's a blank check in the fact that here's a, here's, here, here's a situation being put before uh, before the people, before Moses and before the people. They don't know everything that's going to happen. They don't know all of the uh, circumstances that are, going to, uh, that are going to be before them. And the Lord here, in essence, I'm saying, is just saying not to worry. I'll be to these people whatever they need me to be. You need me to be El Shaddai, I'll be El Shaddai. You need me to be Adonai, I'll be Adonai. You want me to be, you need me to be this, I'll be that. Whatever you need me to be, I'm not going to limit myself. You see, this name does not limit the Lord. Uh, it reflects and declares His absolute sovereignty, His absolute infinity. I am, period. All right, I am, period. Uh, and if you need me to be this, you can guarantee, you can, you can count on that. When you're in the wilderness and you need God Almighty, I'll be God Almighty. 
uh, when you're there facing, uh, facing the enemy, once you start facing the uh, Amalekites and whatever, you need me to be Adonai. Hey, I'll be Adonai then. Right. Here is the blank check uh, that God is giving His people. That I will be whatever I need to be, whatever you need me to be, uh, regardless uh, of the situation. We may be ignorant, you see, uh, of all of the issues that are going to be before us. But if we can know, if we can know this great I am, then that's all we need to know. That really is the only answer uh, that we have uh, to give to the problems and the circumstances. Uh, of life. What an all-encompassing answer. Uh, all-encompassing answer, that is. Uh, if we can tell people uh, just that we know the Lord, that He is who He is, that we have this... Per- and this is the personal name. This is that, one, that name that involves a personal relationship with God. If we can testify to His personality... If we can testify to the fact that we have this personal saving relationship with Him, uh, maybe I can't answer all the questions. Maybe I can't foresee all of the circumstances and difficulties that are going to come my way in life as I seek to fulfill the will of God in my ministry. Uh, But if I know the Lord, Christ is the answer, right? We we, we have that little book that we pass out, and Christ is the answer. Well, He is, right? He is. I don't have to know all the doctrines. I don't have to know all the theology. Now, that's good. Don't misunderstand me. But I have to know the Lord preeminently. I have to be personally aware and knowledgeable of the Lord. Uh, And if I can have that testimony, if I can give that testimony to men uh, that I face in my ministry, that you encounter in your ministry, uh, that really uh, is all that we need to know. Uh, So let's be diligent to know Him. We need to be diligent to know Him. So, the divine name, the divine revelation uh, is the answer to Moses' ignorance. You just know me and you tell these people who I am. Now, uh, let me just handle this one thing because there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, about the pronunciation of this name. And I'm just going to be very, very brief here. Uh, Some say Jehovah. Some say Yahweh. Right. And some of those that say Jehovah say that those that say Yahweh are liberals. All right. uh, not necessarily so. All right. Not necessarily so. Uh, I don't want to put it in, in that ballgame. Uh, there was a tradition that developed. All right. A tradition that developed that the Jews would not pronounce the name of the Lord. All right. They would not pronounce the name of the Lord. And what, what I want to correct here. Uh, is this notion that that was true in the Old Testament. That was not true in the Old Testament. I, I, I get sick and tired, frankly. All right? I get sick and tired, frankly, of modern interpreters looking at Jewish, anti-Christian, anti-Messianic interpretation of the Old Testament, which is rabbinic. We talk about, well, the rabbi. I don't, the rabbis, you understand, were pagans. All, right? All of this Jewish tradition that we have in the Talmud, in the uh, Mishnah, remember this always, is post-Christian and anti-Jesus of Nazareth. All right? I do not look to that rabbinical teaching as evidence of what Old Testament theology was. Uh, and I'm always leery of that. Uh, well, the rabbi, well, the rabbis were anti-Christ. All right? They were anti-Jesus of Nazareth. I don't look to them to find out what the Old Testament meant. There was a perversion. Uh, there was a perversion. Now, it is true 
it is true that in the post-Christian era, and, and I don't know exactly when this started, but certainly it was in vogue uh, by around uh, 500, A.D. 500, at least by that time, uh, there had developed a tradition among the Jews uh, that they were not to pronounce the name Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever it is that you want to give as the pronunciation. All right? There was that tradition based upon uh, a misunderstanding of uh, th this verse. Where is it? I'm, this, I always get myself in trouble here right? because I start talking about something and I didn't prepare to say that and now I don't know where it is. So I'm just kind of talking out loud as I'm looking, right? This is, this is how teachers stall. Right? Uh, Leviticus, someplace in Leviticus, it's 24. Yes, there it is. Uh, look at Leviticus 24, verse 16. Pick up a verse 15. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, you can see there it's Jehovah, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall surely stone him, certainly stone him, as well as the stranger and he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. Now there is a severe penalty placed upon blaspheming the name of the Lord. And well, it should be. All right? Well, it should be. This is that Revelation of the very person of God. So there is this curse that is placed upon blaspheming the name of the Lord. Well, the Jews ultimately in the post-Christian, maybe some in the intertestamental, I don't know, but certainly in the post-Christian era, developed this idea in interpreting the word blaspheming as pronouncing. Right? You're not to pronounce the name of the Lord. God never said that. Now just think of the, think of the foolishness of that. All right. I've emphasized that God reveals himself through his names as an evidence of his grace. I submit to you that it would absolutely make no sense whatsoever if God revealed himself and in the same time in revealing himself by that name prohibited the people from ever uttering that name. How could he told Moses say this name? All right. Say this name. This is what's going to give you the authority to get these people out of here. It wouldn't make any sense for God to reveal the name and now say never use the name. That, that's ludicrous. It was Jewish superstition. Same kind of stuff that uh, we, we see e e e evolving uh, around much of the law, and I think we've talked about this in the past. Here's the law of God, and some of this mentality started uh, back during the intertestamental period. Uh, we have that 400-year period silence, right, if you will, uh, between Malachi and, uh, and Matthew, coming of Christ, about 400 years. A lot of stuff going on historically. Uh, Daniel makes that clear in chapter 11 particularly. Uh, I'm not going to give you a world history lesson here, but remember in, in the second century uh, B.C. Uh, that the Greeks now, having divided the Greek empire after Alexander into four places, four parts, there were two groups particularly that were contesting for Palestine, the one group uh, in Egypt called the Ptolemies, and the other group in Syria uh, called the Seleucids, and they were constantly in contest for the, uh, for the land of Palestine. And the Seleucids particularly uh, were putting great pressure 
uh, upon the Jews. Uh, there was a great push for Hellenization. Remember your world history? Uh, a great push for Hellenization here, which meant that they wanted to bring in and, and cause all of the Greek culture and whatever to uh, become the law of the land. Uh, and this was a real problem with, uh, with the Orthodox Jews. Uh, and we have two things happening. There's a military reaction and there was a religious reaction uh, against the Seleucids during that period. Uh, you've all heard of the Maccabees, right? The Maccabees was an apocryphal book, a couple of apocryphal books called the Maccabees. Well, those were real people, all right? Those were real people. Uh, and the Maccabees were the leaders of a military resistance uh, against, these, uh, against these Greeks. They were trying to force all of this Greek culture upon them. Uh, and, and they did that. Uh, and there's some exciting history. I, I would recommend reading the Maccabees. All right? we, uh, you, you don't believe it, right? The apocryphal works are not... But, but if you need some fancy reading sometimes, it's good to know what's there. Uh, and, and you have some interesting military tales uh, as to how they were fighting against the Greeks and all right, so that's a, a military reaction. You also had a, a, a fundamentalist uh, reaction uh, against this incursion of uh, Greek culture and Greek religion uh, with a group of Jews that became known as the Hasidim. Right? Even today, if you follow in, in modern Judaism, you have the Hasidic Jews, right? the Hasidic Jews, uh, the pious ones, the pious ones. Now, I would contend. Uh, that those Hasidim in the second century uh, were orthodox, and I dare say that they loved the Lord and were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Uh, I, I would have no problem believing that. Uh, but one of the things they did, and we can understand in part, I think, why they did it. Uh, here is all of this pressure, all of this pressure that is coming upon them against the law of God. They wanted them to break the law. They wanted them to uh, be involved in the Greek uh, religion and Greek uh, gymnasiums, and, and what, which was a, a very pagan thing back in those days. Uh, that's why I don't exercise uh, today. Right? Uh, want to keep my heritage going, uh, but, but whatever. Uh, to, to, to protect the law, to protect the law, they made a bunch of applications of the law for their people. Here are the Greeks saying, you've got to do this. and say, no, that would break our law. And so in order to protect the law, they put a little hedge around that law. They put a hedge around that law. And their idea was that if we can uh, keep our people from breaking that hedge, then we are going to at least maintain the sanctity and the purity of the law itself. Uh, and so they developed all of these specific, they got very practical. All right. They got very practical in their application of the law, and they started telling people, here's the law, now do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. See? And if you do this, do this, do this, do this, and don't do that, 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 uh, then you are going to, we'll protect the law. And what happened then is they moved away from the law itself and focused all their attention upon this little hedge around the law. Are you following what I'm saying? Uh, now, this, this happens, for instance, uh, in terms of the Sabbath. And we've talked about this before, I know. Uh, in the Sabbath. How many times have I heard people today you see, saying, oh, we don't have to keep the Sabbath holy today because in the Old Testament they couldn't walk more than a mile. You see? They couldn't walk more than a mile on the Sabbath day. And, we, and I scratch my head to these people and, and I say, have you people never read the Bible? All right? You show me any place in the Bible. You show me any place in the Old Testament Scripture where God, in dealing with the Sabbath, says, now don't walk more than a mile. 
Where does it say that? God never said that. God never said that. But we, that was Jewish superstition. When did that begin? That started in this period uh, of, of, of the Hasidim. They were causing this violation of the Sabbath. Antiochus had made that against the law. They said, no, so here's what we're going to do. Now that developed. Now here comes Christ. Here comes Christ. And Christ by the, and the Pharisees, I'm not going to trace the whole history of that, but the Pharisees that we see in the New Testament have their origins in this Hasidic uh, movement in the intertestamental period. That's where it comes from. Where it comes from. Now, here, here, here's Christ, and, and Christ is accused how many times of breaking the Sabbath? All right? Here are these stinking Pharisees, and every time Christ heals somebody, they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. Now, they accused him of being a lawbreaker. And again, this, this boggles my mind. How is it that we can now come to the hermeneutic of the New Testament and take, take the theology of the Pharisees? And say this is, and, and we take the word of the Pharisees that Christ broke the Sabbath. I submit to you that Christ did not break the Sabbath. Christ was forever bucking up against that hedge that the Pharisees had set around that. He was forever breaking through that hedge. They had made the Sabbath a burden. God had made it a delight. Uh, but all, all this do's and don'ts and regulations. All right, now I'm, there's a reason I'm saying all of this. Right. Illustration. Don't blaspheme. Well, how can we keep our people from blaspheming the name of the Lord? Don't let them say it. All right. Don't let them say it. So they developed then this superstitious tradition that in order to observe and to protect the people from blaspheming the name of God, don't let them even say the name of God. As though this was just a lip thing, right? Uh, not concerned at all about the heart, about the heart issue. So I'm just saying that because uh, I, I've heard so many people say that in the Old Testament they couldn't say the name of the Lord. That is utter and total nonsense. In Jewish superstition, that is at best intertestamental uh, at, at, the, at the earliest. Uh, there was that tradition, but it was based upon a misunderstanding and upon this legalism uh, that developed around the law that if we can protect, if we can keep the people from going this far, you see, we can keep them from going that far, uh, then they, they, they won't go that far. And I'm sort of tempted to take off on this, right? Because I see the same thing happening. All right? Don't you see the same kind of stuff happening in, in modern Christianity? Uh, in, in modern fundamentalism, uh, we want to protect the law, protect the word, so we have all of this stuff out here. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't, and if you do that. And we start then observing all of this stuff without ever coming back to the word. See? Without ever coming back to the word. And I submit that if we get to the word and are, are not afraid of what the Bible says, okay, we're going to be okay. Don't be afraid of what the Bible says. Too many people out there today in modern Christianity and modern fundamentalism are afraid of the Bible. Uh, they're afraid, of, and, I, and I, I submit that to you. They're afraid of what the Bible says to come to the Bible and think it through on their own. No, because I've got all this list over here, right? Got all this list over here. Uh, and, you know, we, we start to pick and choose. My, my time is gone. We start to pick and choose uh, as to what we do.